It's Monday, March 8th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill is on its way to the House for a vote on Tuesday after being passed by the Senate. The bill will give people $1,400 in direct payments and $300 in unemployment benefits. Some of the rules have changed this time around, and if you lost your job or made less money this past year, it might be wise to get your taxes done ASAP. States also continue to roll back pandemic restrictions, and Governor Andrew Cuomo faces more allegations of inappropriate behavior from two more women and more calls to resign. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News, joins us for the latest. Next, the COVID vaccines have been major breakthroughs in science and technology. They've produced a class of vaccines that researchers believe can protect people from other illnesses and outbreaks. From Pfizer and Moderna, we have mRNA platforms, and Johnson & Johnson used viral vector technology. With new insights into the immune system, scientists are reprogramming the body to muster better defenses against viruses. Peter Loftus, healthcare reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us to talk about the promising new class of vaccines. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Nobody said passing one of the largest, perhaps the most significant bill to help the poor and working people in decades was going to be easy, particularly with 50 votes. But it is done. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. The Senate has passed its COVID relief bill. It's $1.9 trillion. It is including $1,400 stimulus checks to Americans, uh, $300 in unemployment benefits. It was passed with no GOP support. We knew that was going to happen. Now the bill moves to the House on Tuesday. They're going to vote then, and then we could start seeing those payments go out pretty soon. But it was a, a tough sell for even some Democrats. Senator Joe Manchin was causing some delays over uh, unemployment benefits. That was one of his sticking points. Yeah, that's right. For those of us that chronicle Congress Friday night into Saturday was made a little bit longer as they uh, held what turned out to be the longest vote ever in the Senate, almost 12 hours to give themselves time to strike a deal with one of their own with Joe Manchin. And the concern Manchin had was that the bill was too generous, that it was giving out too much money. And so there are going to be some reductions. The House passed this relief bill that would provide $400 a week in added unemployment benefits. Now it's at $300 a week. And these stimulus checks, which are $1,400, but a new cap. So if you make less than $80,000 as an individual or $160,000 as a family, then you're not going to be able to qualify for those stimulus checks anymore. A little bit more on these direct payments, because as you mentioned, they they changed some of the caps and and some of the rules with it. There was like a few important notes. Uh, You know, if you lost your job or your wages decreased, they say file your taxes as soon as possible so you can get the maximum amount uh, of that payment. That's right. My colleague Sahil Kapoor has a great piece on NBCNews.com you can read that sort of lays out what you need to know about getting your stimulus checks. But the quick takeaway is, it's going to be a a lower cap. So um, if you were just barely on the edge, you might not get a check this time or you might get a smaller check this time than you would have otherwise. But you're right. If you lost your job last year, if you made less money last year than you did the year before that, hurry up, get those taxes filed today, tomorrow, and then the Treasury will use that number to base your checks off of. 
And the opposite applies here too. If you made more money in 2020 than you did in 2019 and you're right there on the edge, might wait and file your taxes uh, (laughs) in April and then you could still get the stimulus check. As I mentioned, there was no GOP support on the bill. We knew that it was going to be a tough sell for them completely. What was the number that they were hoping for for the total package? Because I know that Republicans want to help people out, but there was just nowhere near on that price tag is what it was. They were looking at something at less than a trillion dollars, and this was $1.9 trillion. And we also have to remember there's sort of some policies in there that they uh, weren't crazy about. They've not been particularly happy about these direct payments as they've gone on. And there's also another round of payments in there. A lot of Americans that qualify for these checks who have children are going to see the IRS continue to send them checks throughout the year this tax credit that has been added that is going to be paid out over time meant to address child poverty. That's something they didn't really like. And then there's a good deal of money in there for state and local governments. And Republicans argued that that was a bailout for liberal cities that had not been wise about their taxing and their spending, and that it was more money than some places needed. That the beginning of the pandemic, we thought that state governments were going to be really hard hit because of the pandemic, but that ultimately at the end of the day, some of them ended up with tax surpluses instead of shortages. On the business side of things, it got a little interesting. Restaurants uh, are big winners in this. Uh, Concert venues and live venues, airplane makers, all getting big chunks of money. And in this case, it kind of really shows how important the lobbying effort is. Because beforehand, you know, let's say the concert venues and live event venues really didn't have any type of lobbying effort there. They didn't get any uh, much money the first time around. But all these things have been hit really hard. This time around, they geared up into action and they were able to get stuff in this bill for them. And, and as I mentioned, you know, it's this kind of jockeying effort. There's a lot of other industries and, and, and places, like nursing homes, you know, saying, hey, we didn't get the same amount of money or, or things like that. So, it, you know, the fighting back and forth on that was uh, also in this bill. Yeah, the first stimulus that might have come through from this bill might have been to the K Street lobbyists in Washington uh, who were busy working the last few months to try to convince lawmakers to help their industry. And you hit some of those. Um, Restaurants had been helped before, but there was another round of help for restaurants, live concert venues, entertainment venues. That was another one that hadn't seen much help before, but is now going to get assistance. And another round of these PPP, these small business loans that have helped um, a myriad of industries and trying to figure out who wasn't getting them that needed them. But I think that there's going to be industries that come back and say, hey, we still need help. Parts of the healthcare industry that you would think a pandemic would have kept them busy, but there's definitely sectors of the healthcare industry uh, that in fact had less business and have had less money. And so I think we're going to see, even after this is signed into law, some concerns from some of those industries. Yeah, everybody needs help. That's the tough part. And the need for that is ongoing. And at the same time, we're seeing a lot of states starting to open back up, easing the restrictions around mask wearing, indoor capacity caps. Texas, Mississippi, Alabama, West Virginia, all of these states have moved to uh, completely take those restrictions away or at least ease them up in the coming weeks or so. Um, So that's also uh, been going about. That's right. You know, we see Texas, which 100% reopened, full capacity inside their restaurants, getting rid of their mask mandates. And there's some concern on the federal level and in other states uh, that it's just a little bit too soon to be doing that. We've seen cases drop off. We've seen the vaccine really start to get moving 
but that they needed a few more weeks. You know, we saw Dr. Fauci say, we'll get there. We're just not quite there yet. Um, So they'll be watching closely the rates and the infections in those places and other states that are weighing whether or not it's time uh, to sort of lift up all of those regulations. We'll also be watching closely to see in the next two or three weeks what their numbers look like. Finally, the story kind of everybody's been following over the past couple of weeks Governor Andrew Cuomo, the troubles for him continue. Two more women have come out to accuse him of inappropriate behavior, uh, and Anna Liss and Karen Hinton. Um, these, uh, you know, concern, you know, him hugging and kissing them. So the problem's still there. We're still waiting to see uh, this investigation from the attorney general there. So this investigation is underway. We know New York Attorney General Tish James said that uh, she had issued subpoenas, uh, holds on materials that were in the governor's office. Basically, they can't destroy anything, indicating that she is going to subpoena or obtain that information. And we're seeing more accusations, as you said, more women. Also a story in the Washington Post this weekend that looked more broadly at sort of accusations of a toxic workplace that he maintained. I think that we're really starting to see the political ramifications of these uh, accusations come out. Voters that are unhappy, any thought he might have had about running for a fourth term seemed to be very unlikely. And there's going to be more pressure, I think, from Democrats we see coming in to say maybe he should think about stepping aside, especially as these accusations continue to grow. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You know, even though some of these technologies were years in the making, this pandemic has sort of been their moment to actually deliver, if not for the very first time, then in the biggest way possible. Joining us now is Peter Loftus, healthcare reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Thanks for having me on. A lot is being made right now about the vaccines. We're obviously going through the rollout. Things are ramping up. But, you know, I really have found very fascinating the story of how these vaccines have come to be and the new technologies that we're using. Obviously, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are using this mRNA technology. We've never had a vaccine that has been approved before. And Johnson & Johnson, the new one that just got approved, they also are using new technology. Theirs is a little different. It's called viral vector technology. You know, these brand new things are showing a lot of promise and big hopes for fighting, you know, infections in the future, other pandemics, just other diseases. There's a lot of potential with all of these. So, Peter, tell us a little bit about your reporting on this. You know, vaccines have been around for a couple hundred years. And for most of that time, they used sort of tried and true methods of making them. And in a lot of cases, that meant taking part of the virus or the pathogen that you want to try to protect against and using it in the vaccine itself to deliver that into the body to induce an immune response. And so those are still in use, but there have been efforts over the past few decades to find new ways to make vaccines. And the pandemic has really brought that out in the sense that, you know, even though some of these technologies were years in the making, this pandemic has sort of been their moment to actually deliver. If not for the very first time, then in the biggest way possible for that vaccine technology. And so, as you mentioned, the first couple of vaccines use this messenger RNA technology, and this Johnson & Johnson one uses a viral vector technology. And they're both newer ways of making vaccines, and they both involve 
essentially delivering a genetic code and genetic instructions that tell the body to do certain things to induce an immune response rather than deliver the actual virus into the body that you're trying to fight against. We've talked about the mRNA vaccines for a bit now, only because they were approved first from Pfizer and Moderna. Johnson & Johnson, as I mentioned, recently approved. They're using this viral vector technology. Tell us a little bit more about that. It's different from the old ways, as you were describing, but they still use a virus that they kind of readjust to help do this. So how how does the viral vector stuff work? That's a good point because um, I don't want to mislead people to think that there's no viral material in these viral vector vaccines. The, The difference is that you're using a virus that has essentially nothing to do with the disease you're trying to combat. And the general concept for these viral vector vaccines is to take one harmless virus and to use it against a more deadly virus. And so in the case of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and a couple others that are out there for COVID, like the one from AstraZeneca and University of Oxford, is to take something called an adenovirus, which is a relatively harmless virus that can cause common colds or conjunctivitis, and to tweak it in such a way so that if it's injected into your body, it's not going to cause disease. It's not going to cause the common cold. It's certainly not going to cause COVID, but it serves as sort of a carrier and it's modified in a way so that it actually then carries DNA that tells the body's cells to make this spike protein that's found on the surface of the coronavirus. Finding that right virus was such an interesting part of this story. Johnson & Johnson decided they were going to go this route, viral vector technology, and they had to be on the hunt for the right virus because there was also concerns, you know, if you're using viral material, what if you build up an immunity to that specific virus? Then could you build up an immunity to the vaccine itself? So they were on the hunt for a very specific one to use as well. That question of whether this viral vector or or this sort of carrier that makes up the vaccine is going to can pose an issue. And so in the past, there have been instances where that's been a problem. And I think it's not been entirely solved. And so in the past, the problem was that when they tried using one of these adenoviruses to be the sort of carrier in a vaccine in people who had pre-existing immunity to that adenovirus, this common cold virus, it sort of interfered with the effectiveness of the vaccine against various diseases. And so what Johnson & Johnson had to do was sort of figure out okay, well, we need to pick the right carrier, the the right adenovirus, and, you know, ideally one that is just not that common out in the world so that not as many people have pre-existing immunity to it, but even the people who do have pre-existing immunity to it, maybe it's not going to be such a strong immune response against the carrier that would interfere with what the underlying vaccine is trying to do. Tell me a little bit more about Johnson & Johnson and the company, you know, how they got into this. Because my understanding, I mean, obviously we know Johnson & Johnson for a myriad of products, but they're fairly new to the vaccine game. And they did achieve a little bit of success with an Ebola vaccine using this viral vector technology also. So, you know, how, how did that work out for them? And then obviously they transitioned into working on the COVID virus. They've got the well, well-known brands that you alluded to, Band-Aid baby powder, and they've long had a a very strong prescription drug business. So drugs like Remicade uh, that that treat people who are already sick. 
and, and they're a major player, but they've not been a major player in vaccines. And so about 10 years ago, they decided they wanted to get into vaccines more. So they bought this Dutch biotechnology company called Crucell. And that's really where this viral vector technology came from that J&J is using. And so they kind of spent several years just designing vaccines against various infectious diseases and then running them through the regular series of tests. So this would be things like Ebola and Zika. Then they were able to start testing their Ebola vaccine using this vector technology in Africa uh, after, I think, first after that, the really big outbreak in West Africa five or six years ago, and then more recently in the Congo, where there was another outbreak. And so they went through the whole series of studies for that vaccine and then eventually got a European Commission approval for it in the middle of last year. So now they do have this sort of platform that could work not only against COVID-19, but also against Ebola and then potentially additional infectious diseases. And they, in fact, they even have a vaccine in development for HIV, which has sort of been this notoriously difficult uh, virus to target in the form of a vaccine. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting how far we've come, how much we've learned about the human body, so much so that, uh, you know, we're hacking the genetic software, you know, of the body to produce these things. You know, all these insights into the immune system that we've gained have led us to this stuff. So what's the promise for these things? Like, you know, what can we expect? I know they're working on vaccines for other diseases, gene therapies. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of promise with this. Yeah. And it's, and in a way it's sort of a convergence of a couple different strains that have been going on in pharmaceutical research and academic research. And that is the genetic revolution on the one hand, but also immunology. And that's immunology is, is kind of, feeding into both vaccines to prevent disease, but also a whole new class of drugs to treat disease by, in some way, affecting the immune system. And so, I mean, there are people that, infectious disease experts, who, who say that this is really a golden age of vaccinology, that these advances kind of signal that and, and think that it really shows that there's promise to really target a lot of other infectious diseases and in the case of a, of a big emerging outbreak, like we've seen, to do it in a way that is really quick and can actually have an effect in actually stemming a pandemic while it's underway, you know, rather than just develop things on the normal timeline of, of many years that the, the pharmaceutical industry is, is used to. Yeah. And in the case of Johnson & Johnson, it's a one-shot protocol. If we can apply that to other things, one shot and you can develop some immunity, that's amazing. With the Pfizer and Moderna, those are two shots. But even still, after the first shot, they provide some level of immunity. But I know Johnson & Johnson went full bore with that single shot. I mean, that's just great stuff if we can really apply that to, to many other areas. Yeah, and I think it really could lend itself to helping things out, especially uh, outside the U.S. and in lower-income countries where they might not have the healthcare infrastructure or even just the things like the specialized freezers that are needed to store some of these higher end vaccines. Um, and so that, that is another potential advantage. And we'll see how that unfolds um, in the coming months. Peter Loftus, healthcare reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure.
that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.